tonight, I need your help. When I opened up chapter 24 today, I looked at it. One of the dangers of doing a line-by-line study of Scripture is you get to these parts where you go, eh. Like, how do you present this? How do you teach this part of Matthew? So tonight, we're starting in verse 24, and Jesus is going to begin to talk about the end and the end times. And he's going to spend quite a bit of time teaching in parables and in direct teaching, and Matthew captures this in the Olivet Discourse. So we're diving in right in chapter 24. Let me set it up for you. Jesus has just been at the temple. Jesus has given his famous pronouncement where he said that if you tear this temple down, I will rebuild it in three days. Many of us know that he was not talking about the literal temple. He was talking about himself, that he was predicting or he was foreshadowing the fact that he will rise again on the third day. And that's the temple that he was describing. He's also doing something very interesting there. He's contrasting himself with the temple. The temple is at the center of Jewish faith. And he's basically making a statement that the temple is no longer relevant because the fullness of God that once dwelled in the temple now dwells in him. And he is here. And he leaves the temple. And you're going to see in a second that he leaves the temple. The implication in the original language is almost like he's leaving it behind, abandoning the temple in a way as he leaves it. And then he starts making a lot of statements about the end that are crystal clear, so there'll be no debate whatsoever about what he means, all right? If you brought your scriptures, follow along. If not, it's right here. I'm using the NIV just because that's the one that most of you have. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Stop right there for a moment. The temple was a magnificent structure. It was beautiful to behold. In fact, It was common for the Jews to believe at this time that the temple could never be destroyed, especially since it housed the Holy of Holies where God was going to be. Now, even though it had already been destroyed once before the previous temple, there was a belief at this time that that would no longer happen. So already Jesus' words about tear this temple down and I will rebuild it is a little bit scandalous. But they're marveling at it. And then Jesus says in verse 2, Do you see all these things, he asked? I tell you the truth. Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, I said a few minutes ago that Jesus said that that if the temple was torn down, he could rebuild it if it was brought down. He was talking about himself. In verse 1 of chapter 24, And in verse 2, now he's talking about the physical temple. So there's almost kind of like a contrast. Now he's talking about the actual temple, and he says, you see these things? They'll all be torn down. This temple is coming down. Jesus is making a prediction here, a prophetic prediction. Anyone know to what? It was destroyed in 70 AD. So roughly 40 years after this is said, the temple was destroyed. Remember, it was their idea that the temple couldn't be destroyed. Okay? A lot of people say that Jesus was already predicting something that they thought was going to happen. Most of them thought the temple could never be destroyed. And then all of a sudden we're in verse 3. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples started talking to him privately. We just kind of read that as a transitional statement. Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives are a little bit far apart from each other. In fact, here's a picture of Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. It's a panoramic picture of Jerusalem that you can see. It's probably a two or three hour hike to get out of the city and climb up to the Mount of Olives. 
you have to cross down the mountain, down a little valley, and back up to the Mount of Olives, and it's a pretty steep climb. So verse 2 and verse 3 are not just like incidentally, and then all of a sudden they come by and tap him on the shoulder. Apparently, he does what he does in verse 1 and 2, this conversation he has, and then he goes up to the Mount of Olives a few hours later, sits down, and now he's going to teach the disciples, most people think, privately. And they're asking him, hey, that thing you said about the temple being destroyed, when's that going to happen? But I want you to notice something. They put two things together that Jesus had not yet mentioned. What will be the sign of your coming and the sign of the end of the age? Jesus hasn't been talking about the sign of his coming or the end of the age. He's been talking about the destruction of the temple. And all of a sudden, they're asking, when is all this going to happen? In their minds, if you destroy the temple, that is the end of the age. They're still thinking that there's no distinction. Because to destroy the temple, I mean, what could be worse than that in the minds of a first century Jew? Jesus is going to now start answering some or all or none of these questions, depending on how you interpret it. Here's how he says it. I'm going to skip all the way to verse 34. So we're leaving verse 3. I'm fast-forwarding 34. I want you to keep this verse in mind. He says all the things he's about to say between verse 4 and 33. He says, I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Let me say it again. This generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. That's what makes it so hard to understand what Jesus is about to say. Because if you read this in English, it sounds like he's saying, this generation is not going to die out until all the things I'm about to describe are going to happen. What are those things? Let's look at some of them. Starting in verse 4. Watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, claiming I am the Christ, and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen. But the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these things are the beginning of birth pains. When we hear these verses commonly cited, what do we usually think of? What's like the common, just what's your gut reaction to what you think of when you think of these verses? Most commonly, people come up with, this is the signs of the end times. But notice the question that they asked Jesus was, when is the temple going to be destroyed? When is that going to trigger the end? And Jesus doesn't say that that's going to trigger the end. He says, watch out that no one deceives you. In fact, watch some of the things he says. Some people are going to come in my name. In my name, what does that mean? It means that they're going to claim that they're the Messiah. But the end is still not to come. Even if you hear about all these things, such as wars and rumors of wars, all these are the beginnings of birth pains. In other words, what Jesus is saying in this passage is these are not the signs. Jesus is answering in the negative. They're saying, will you tell us the signs? And he's saying, these are not the signs. Why would he make such a weird statement like that? These are not the signs. Well, they're saying, what are the signs? How will we know? He's saying, well, before I answer that question here, not the sign. Here's a commentary that I would make. There's a lot of Christians that spend time looking for these signs. Maybe you've noticed that. I mean, we have a lot of popular movies that actually try to break these things down and try to say that these things are going on. But there are whole churches that are spending time trying to read the tea leaves, if you will. Like there's wars and there's rumors of war. Something must be happening. 
But Jesus is kind of saying, that's normal. Those aren't the signs that you should be looking for. Maybe you've heard people every time like a major earthquake happens, like people freak out and go, I think we're getting closer to the end. Well, that might be true. It's always true. I mean, if you think about it logically, every day we must be getting closer to the end, whenever that is. I mean, it just has to happen, right? But he's saying, those aren't the signs. But I digress, Jesus could be saying. By the way, here's some more not signs. He says, then you'll be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. And you'll be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. And the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. And then the end will come. He's saying like, all these things are going to come way before. These are not going to signal the end. Directly, That seems to be what he's implying. You will be persecuted. You will be handed over. There will be people who abandon it. Even this part here where it says, he who stands firm in the end will be saved. It's not the end. Actually, the English puts a the in there where the the is not there in the original language. It seems to imply like your end, their end, but not the end, like with the capital T, meaning the very end. It just means that if you persevere, then you will be saved. All right, this is probably the easier part to understand. Jesus goes on. Starting in verse 15. So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. I was hearing a Bible preacher the other day who was saying that the Bible doesn't need any interpretation whatsoever. Anybody could understand it if you just pick it up you could drop it out of an airplane in a parachute to people who've never read it before, and they could open it up, and they could understand what it means and what it says, and that's the end of it. And he was also making a case that people don't need to go to school or seminary or anything like that. Okay, let's assume he's right. I just dropped this verse out of a parachute, and you guys are reading it. Let me read it again. So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. I'm sure you all understand. So what does that mean? I mean, he couldn't be any clearer. Come on. Yeah. Well, I know that it happens, um, the abomination that causes desolation wins when a, a ruler um, sacrificed a pig and took it to the altar. Um, for one thing, he's not even a priest, and he's standing in the place of God, and I think declaring himself to be God, and then he's also slaughtered, slaying a pig, which is... The desolation. Okay, good. That's very good. That's, that's a good reference. Anyone know the reference you're talking about? The reference you're talking about comes from the Maccabees, and that's Antiochus Epiphanes, who was a ruler in Macedonia, one part of Macedonia, who decided to take vengeance against the Jews and basically sacrifices a pig and desolates the temple and then you know, tries to destroy it, but doesn't destroy it, which is very key. We also get the story of Hanukkah. The Jewish story of Hanukkah comes from that whole epic battle of him against the Jews and the Jewish war that erupts, all that stuff. It's the Jewish rebellion of the Maccabees. Yes? This is, this is why this, this causes such trouble in the scholarly community, because just before Jerusalem is sacked and the temple is destroyed, a large segment of Christians flee to the mountains 
to get out of Jerusalem because they see the Roman army, and I forget which emperor or which ruler. There was one general who sacked the temple and you know took all of its riches and basically leveled the city. That to me says this is being put into this story, this scripture here, clearly with those events already having happened. I mean, it's very specific. Like, in other words, he's putting it as a let those who flee to flee to the mountains. But at the same time, if you read it as something that like already happened, like like the gospel writer saw as a historical fact, many Christians did in fact flee, and like many people left before this before this desolation took place, which was the Roman Empire in this case. So if I hear what you're saying, you're saying that the writer of Matthew knew this already happened and wrote it into the story? I'm saying that of the four Gospels, Matthew is one of the most editorialized. So the reader in this case would understand that they, they would probably even access their stories of the apocalyptic, you know, the apocalyptic stories of Daniel. Like they would, they would interlace this all together, whereas a, a, a Greek living during this time wouldn't understand that. Yeah, I thought about that too. And in fact, I went looking through that because it does seem that if you think about when Matthew is written, that it's very possible that if you're talking about events that either have taken place already, that it, that it puts into doubt like what Jesus is really saying anyway, especially if Matthew's writing about them. Now, maybe he's writing about them all the more because they happened and he's so excited to tell people. And the theory behind that that actually supports that second view is that Matthew is borrowing, if you will, the sayings of Jesus that have been floating around well before the destruction of the temple. In fact, the other gospel writers, the synoptic gospel writers, both Mark and Luke have similar passages and similar sayings, meaning that there's a good chance that it's reliable that Jesus actually said these things before the destruction of the temple. So when did they get recorded and how did they get back to Matthew? And is he embellishing or you said editorializing? Or is he using maybe a particular focus on it because he thinks, wow, this is really good for us. It turned out to be the case. I should really emphasize this. Yeah, most people look at this part here. It says, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. There was recorded an exodus. Uh, one other thing, just as a side note, is that the, the Jews who fled didn't go to the mountains for some reason. I mean, Jesus is not saying they will go to the mountains. He's saying they should go to the mountains. And they actually ended up going somewhere else, and that was, turns out historically that wasn't so good for them. But Jesus is making some pretty strong language here. He says, let no one on the roof of his house go down to take anything out of his house. Like, this is going to come so fast, it's going to be so destructive that you don't even have time to pack. Let no one in the fields go back to get his cloak. How dreadful it will be in the days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in the winter or on the Sabbath. This is where it starts to get gray and murky. Because if the temple is being sacked and Jerusalem is being attacked, he's talking about all of Judea, not just Jerusalem. He's saying all of those people should go. You don't even have time to grab your cloak. Like it seems like he's starting to use some of that hyperbole he's used before, or he's really trying to say something very important. Listen to this next verse. For then there will be great distress unequaled from the beginning of the world until now and never to be equaled again. That's why when I was reading this, I thought, do we really have to do this? Maybe I could just start at verse 25 and just pretend, you know, like that we just forgot to do 24. If you read that, going from verse 20, pray that your flight will not take place in the winter or on the Sabbath. And by the way, everything up until now that I've been reading, 
Most commentators believe that he is talking about the destruction of the temple and that most of the events that take place take place up until the destruction of the temple, but then this thing is kind of troubling. There will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. Here's where we get stuck. If you go back to this, these verses, most commentators are trying to figure out, how do we make Jesus' words work out? Many people who read this think, oh, these are the signs of the very, very end of the age, right before the second coming. That doesn't <coughs> seem to fit. Especially since I read you the verse that Jesus says, this generation is not going to pass away until all these things come to pass. So they start looking at these things, wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes, and they start looking at the time between Jesus' words and the time of the destruction and say, were there wars? Yes. Were there earthquakes? Yes. So very plausible reading that all of these things took place or were taking place. And Jesus is saying, all this stuff's going to happen. Don't worry. These aren't signs. Next, you should know that the temple will be destroyed. I've already told you about that. And when you see that, you better flee for the hills. But then what do we make of verse 21? How can we say that that destruction of the temple was the worst distress that anyone has ever seen? And it will never be equaled again. Is that worse than the Holocaust? Worse than the destruction we just saw in Haiti? I mean, like, what is Jesus saying? Anyone want to take a shot at it? Don't be shy tonight, no matter what you say. Probably some commentator has said it too. Yeah. Before this, there were four religious sects of pre-Judaism and pre-Christianity. And then after this time, three of them are now gone, pretty much gone. One of them, the Pharisees remain, and they go off to make Judaism. But now they have to make sense of a faith that doesn't have a temple and doesn't have, doesn't have an ark. They don't have any of what they previously had. So now their entire world is turned upside down. They don't have a nation because it's completely destroyed by the Roman Empire, pretty much. Um, and then, and then, so you have these two sects coming out. You have the Christians and the Pharisees creating a kind of a synagogue Judaism. So to me, I, th I think that is, I mean, it's definitely not to compare the, how horrible that it was for them to other things that have happened, but that's pretty terrible when your entire nation falls apart, your faith falls apart. Um, everything that you founded it on is now not there, and so you have to make sense of that. Okay, some people have taken exactly what you said. That's one answer, which is the destruction of the temple is so significant, especially to Judaism. So you rightly stated that even the fact that Judaism becomes scattered, like you lose some people's, you lose certain traditions. Synagogue Judaism, what, you're, what, what Jason's referring to is that now wherever you are in whatever city you are, you actually try to make like, you know, your own synagogue or mini temple because the actual temple is no longer there. And by the way, this destruction of the temple in 70 AD, I mean, this was not ever to be rebuilt. To this day, it's still not rebuilt. I mean, the Jews returned to Israel in 1948. So like, we're talking, you know, 1900 years later, the Jews finally get to go back to Israel and form the nation of Israel. But the temple to this day is still not there. They think they know where it should be. But if you saw that picture of Jerusalem, there's the golden dome. That's the dome of the rock. The Muslims built the dome of the rock right on top of where the temple's supposed to be. Okay. And so the Jews have a problem because if they, they move that, that could really trigger the Armageddon. I don't know. <laughs> you know, like that, that, that's, that's one of the hardest things to do. Yeah. Jason's answer has a piece of it. I still think you even mentioned like hyperbole. There's got to be some, I think that's got to be at least factored in. There's got to be some warning. It's clearly a warning passage. But I don't think even with that frame of reference, like 
if we took that literally, like, this will be the greatest disruption, unequal to the end of the world until now, like, even in the context of sitting there and saying, okay, they lost their faith, they had to remodel it, they had to do all these things, like, I can't think of, I mean, I would find a hard time everyone raising their hand going, yeah, that must have been the worst, you know, like, no, there's got to be some hyperbole involved in and that answer is given that that's what they knew, that's the worst thing they could imagine. The problem with that, which is, people, people support that answer. But the, the pushback from the other people is, Jesus is making predictions. He doesn't know that there's going to be much worse things coming. I mean, that would put Jesus in a very limited knowledge perspective. Yes? I'm still going to go whatever I and say that I would like to emphasize less the, the idea that this is predictive and say that if we look at it as more of a from an editorial process, that if we look at the next couple of verses, what I think is you see a theological statement coming out, more about the ending of that method of salvation. I, I think, because he talks about, how does he say, he talks about, um, and if those days had not been cut short, no one will be saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. So. It seems to me there's more a theological idea here. Again, I would say more of the editorialization at this point, less Jesus in that. He, they're not, he, I don't know that he's necessarily even talking about this event or any event being the worst event. More the idea that the temple symbolizes the end of the way God operates in the world. And if we go back to even um, the idea of birth pains or birth pangs, I think it's not that that is not, not that I agree that those aren't clues to the, the, to the end, but they are at least the beginning of something. So maybe there's a reconciliation, you know, it's, it's the, this is the beginning of something and the end of another. And in the, sense of that, uh, in the sense of this being the end of something, it would be pretty, pretty big, uh, especially to, at this time, if Jesus is saying this, to a bunch of Jews who are, who are not Christians. Let me comment on the birth pains. In Jewish apocalyptic literature, it was already known that the birth pains are kind of signs of the end. The end, there's going to be some cosmic battle. They all kind of believe that. The funny thing is that a lot of liberal writers put Jesus as a Jewish apocalyptic guy, and he's just out there. He's actually contradicting quite a bit of their ideas. First, that the temple would be destroyed, which Jewish apocalyptic literature at the time thought the temple could never be destroyed. But second, identifying the birth pains as not the end, but more like, like you pointed out, the beginnings of something. They are signs. They are pointing to it. But they thought like, oh, these are going to be like the signs of the end. And he's kind of taking a much earlier view of them than was common. You know, you could rightly ask right now, why are we even studying Matthew this way? <laughs> it's a good question. One of the reasons we always study Matthew in this, in this line by line way is because I've been around churches for a long time. And I've yet to hear the pastor who's preached this sermon. Because I could just see the questions and the confusion and the struggles and the doubt that it creates. But these are Jesus' words. We got to understand these parts. Yeah. What I'm not so sure about, just because I don't think I have the historical context, I'm still not understanding the abomination that causes desolation spoken through the prophet Daniel. What's the connection between that and the destruction? Of the, of the temple, because if there is not that connection, then Jesus could be speaking of a completely different event besides the destruction of the temple that has yet to occur even in our time. It's a very good question. So let's go back to Daniel. Daniel makes a prediction that there will be an abomination to the temple. Okay, So 
as Jason earlier pointed out, first, the Jews thought that might have happened in 167 BC when you had the whole Jewish revolt and uprising and then you had epiphanies like sacrificing a pig. Jesus ties it to a different event. You'll know that this destruction is coming and you know to flee when you see the abomination. So I think what you're asking is, all right, well, did anything else happen that could be considered the abomination? I mean, historically, if we look at it, what else happened? There were a couple events that happened. There was a couple of Caesars that tried to degrade, defame, whatever you want, to put in their own statues in the temple. Some people say that towards the end, as the temple was about to be destroyed, the Romans took their standards, the Roman standards, you know, they had all the flags and the banners and everything, which the Jews considered to be idolatrous, and they put them in the temple. There's a lot of debate over what event was there. Do we know what it was historically or not? Obviously, one, one commentator said, well, if somebody was doing something to desecrate the temple, it might not have been recorded. But we do know the temple was destroyed. So I guess the short answer is, there's like three or four things that people pick and go, that was it, that was it, that was it. Nobody can agree. But everybody does agree that at 70 AD, it was destroyed. That's, that's from Daniel. That's what he's referring to. So... I guess there's nothing more abominable or desecrating than destroying it. And then a lot of the Jews were not only killed, but they were expelled from Judea and basically never to return until 1948, like legally, never to have a state again. Okay? Let me tell you one solution that some people, I'll give you some positive things. If you have an NIV, verse 20 and 21 follow as if they're in the same or they're like right next to each other. Here's what some commentators have done. They've actually said that there's a break here. There's a break in thought that our paragraph structure doesn't quite capture. Some people are suggesting that up until verse 20, he is actually talking about the destruction of the temple, and then he is moving into a new thought. Now, you're going to see it in English saying, for then, meaning like then, at that time. But the word then doesn't have to mean chronologically at that time, it means after that point. It could mean immediately thereafter, but it could just say, like, at some point thereafter. So that's why everybody writes different things about this. Here's some of the possibilities. You guys already highlighted it, that the events that surrounded the destruction were the worst things anybody could imagine. That's one view that people take. Second, there's a 2,000-year gap, at least, between these two thoughts. Jesus is saying that this will destroy the temple, period, and then at some point thereafter, for then, at some point thereafter, there will be great distress unequaled. And this will begin a new part we haven't gotten yet. So you could say there's just time going on in between those two verses for a long time. Or the third answer is Jesus is referring to the beginning of a new age, starting with the destruction of the temple where the destruction of the temple signifies the end of the temple era for good. And from that point until whenever the end actually is, things are going to get progressively worse. So if you're following that, um, that third option, how does that quite fit in with um, never to be equaled again seems to suggest that there's this distress and then a future beyond the distress if it refers to the second coming, where is this further future coming from? Absolutely. It's one of the problems. The other problem with it is if it's really this age, then we're going to bump into that other verse at the end that says, for this generation will not pass away before all these things take place. So like verse 21 and verse 34 seem to bump right into each other in some thing. If you keep reading for just a moment, it says, 
If these days had not been cut short, no one would survive, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. You see how the tense seems to be switching back and forth? So even to address your question about how it could be, but it's not going to have a future, but it is in the future, I mean, he's, the, the tense seems to jump back and forth. And he is talking about this future thing where he's saying, you know, at that time, anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, there he is, do not believe it. False Christs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive the, even the elect, if that were possible. And then probably one of the most ironic statements Jesus makes is, see, I've told you. Like, what'd you tell me? Can you imagine the disciples after he's done this whole thing? He says, see, I have told you ahead of time. Hey, did you understand anything he said? <laughs> like, what did he tell us? I don't understand. Is there going to be a quiz on this? Because I didn't get anything he just said. We have it written down. I read it over and over and over again. And the only thing I can say at this point is, Holy Spirit, open our eyes, please, to be able to glean something from these words because they're so difficult to understand. You can see why churches have been arguing for centuries. Are these really talking about the end? Is he talking about the destruction of the temple? Is Matthew talking about things that are going to be in the future? Have they already happened? And then people start breaking down. And we haven't even talked about beasts and none of that stuff that people are talking about, like, right? We're not even looking at like revelation, like signs and seals and beasts and harlots and all that stuff. Like, woo, we're just talking about straight Jesus in Matthew. Crystal clear. Yes. Where's number two come from? There's at least two that I've where is that I was just, just, I've never heard that. Yeah, it's in it's in one of the commentaries I have. In fact, I brought it with me that one of the possible explanations is that there is, that he's talking about, this is the end of the temple, like, destruction series, verse 20. And then he's jumping to verse 21, which is things that will happen, not in exactly 2,000 years. What I'm saying is that he's jumping from destruction of the temple to the end days in one verse. And the commentator is saying that causes problems. I mean, that would be a very strange thing to be talking and all of a sudden, you know, jump into something without even a transitional statement. Now, they will say the transitional statement is the for then. Because correctly, I think, and I'm not a Greek scholar, I'm just saying that everyone agrees, though, that the word then has multiple meanings. It could mean immediately, it could mean after that time, it could mean at some point thereafter. So that just because it says, and then, or for then, we read it as meaning like, okay, so right then. But that's an English connotation to the word, not the actual denotation of the word that's used. Um, so you have the NIV, Jill is the NASB, and it said, I think, the same thing for then there will be. But I have the NRSB, which actually says for at that time. That translation does specifically link it to for at that time. Yeah, that is one of the possible words you could use, right, for the Greek word tot, which is the then. But what you're highlighting is that somebody, when they're like, like deciding on how to translate, they're making a decision on which words to use. And I'm not saying that this is right. I'm not saying that that's wrong. I'm saying all of them are giving us trouble. Anything else on this? You guys all totally up to speed? <laughs> I hate the fact that tonight I feel like we're going to just leave this with like not much resolution. I will tell you that after reading everything I've read, here's my resolution. I think that Jesus is taking a digression here. He is not directly answering the question about when, when he starts to talk about what is not a sign. 
It's almost like he's saying, let me tell you what's not a sign, and we'll come back to your question. But I'm not even going to answer your question directly. Because you linked, when am I going to come back with when the temple is going to be destroyed? And I never said those things were going to happen together. You made that connection in your mind, and he never answers that directly. Almost as if to say, you made the leap, I didn't. But in this digression that he takes on here, he's saying what's not the sign. And as I said before, I think it's very interesting that churches spent all their time trying to decipher these signs when he was basically saying, these aren't the signs. Then he actually will talk about the temple and warn people that this is going to happen and should flee for your lives when this does happen, all the way down to verse 20. That I've kind of settled on. I do believe that the rest of this, starting in verse 21 and going down, is about the, the kind of more apocalyptic end, the later end. And I don't know how to make the jump between verse 20 and 21. My personal taste would be probably to use number three. To think that he is talking about the continual time period that's going to begin with the destruction of the temple and culminate at the very end. But that's just because the commentators that I read kind of came out that way and only one said, no, that can't work. Here's why I also think he is talking about the end. Because now he's fully talking about things that are prophetic and kind of apocalyptic like these. And if anyone tells you, starting in verse 26, so if anyone tells you, there he is out in the desert, do not go out. Or he, here he is in inner rooms, do not believe it. The Jews thought that the Messiah, for some reason, would always appear in the desert or that he would be some sort of hidden Messiah that would reveal himself. That was popular in their apocalyptic literature as well. That's why a lot of people went to see John the Baptist. They wondered, hey, there's one in the wilderness. Maybe he's the guy. But Jesus says, you're going to know. He says, for as lightning that comes from the east is visible, even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather. All right, let's talk about that verse. You know, I've read the Bible a lot of times. I've never actually noticed that verse. There's Jesus' wisdom. I'd like to see somebody put that on a bumper sticker, you know, instead of like whatever it is we put out, all these Christian paraphernalia. Like, how about if you went to a Christian bookstore and on the little pillow that people knit, it says, wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather, Matthew 24. That'd be like the greatest thing, wouldn't it? I'm sure that would sell out in a, like in a minute, you know? All right, Exodus, what does that verse mean? Is he, is he taking a slight at somebody? Is he trying to slam somebody? No, actually, Jesus was actually just using something that was a common phrase at the time. Like, the way you knew where something was was all the vultures were circling, okay? And that's how you knew where the thing that, you know, where, where it was. So it's a parallel metaphor to the idea that you don't need to worry about somebody saying, I think I found him over here, or he's in this inner room. Like, you're going to know. Everyone's going to know. You're going to know from miles. Like lightning, you can see it from everywhere. When he comes, you're going to know. You're not going to need to say, oh, I think I discovered him. Let me show you the secret Messiah. Everyone's going to know. He cites from Isaiah, immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. We're going to know, is what he's saying. Whether you believe that the stars will literally fall from the sky, I don't even believe that that was the intended meaning. I think he was trying to say, you're going to know. Just like we say something is earth shattering. Like we don't really believe the earth is going to shatter. You know? But he's making the idea that you're going to know. It's not going to be something that you have to wonder about. At that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And all the nations of the earth will mourn. 
They will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of the sky with power and great glory, and he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. That's why I think starting in verse 21, he's shifted. That's why I agree that somewhere he's made a shift, because this stuff is not about the destruction of the temple. This stuff is clearly about the second coming of the Messiah. Something that everyone's going to know. Something that all people will understand. The nations of the earth are going to mourn. And this language is very key. The Son of Man coming on the clouds. We've seen this language before in Matthew. It's a reference back to Daniel 7. In verse 13, it says, In the vision of night I looked, and there before me was one like a Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. Throughout Matthew, he likes the term son of man because he's using it in a distinct way. The people understood what Daniel was referring to, like somebody who approaches the ancient of days. Who could approach God? Who gets to come on the clouds of heaven? That was a reference to deity. In fact, Jesus gets convicted at his trial for using the very same words. When they asked him, like, are you the Christ? He says, yes, it is as you say. But he goes even further. He's not just saying, I'm the Messiah. He's actually about to now say something they consider blasphemous. He's about to say, and I am divine. He says these words, but I say to all of you, in the future you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. That's enough to get him crucified. So Jesus' words here are intentional about seeing the Son of Man appearing in the sky and all this stuff, he's talking about a future revelation where everyone will know. You're not going to have to hear about it. It's going to be up in the sky. At least that's what he's saying. Whether that's literally going to be a sign. There are people who debate, is a cross going to appear? I mean, there's people who have actually defended this, that there will be a cross appearing in the sky. Some people just say, no, you'll just see him and his angels. I don't know. I don't know what it'll be. But the point isn't, for us to imagine it, the point is for us to just know that when it happens, we won't have to wonder. It'll be beyond wonder. But that still doesn't solve the problem. What happened between verse 20 and 21? How do we go from talking about the temple, if that's what he was talking about, to talking about the end? And what is this event that's so bad it will never be repeated again? Is it one event or is it just the continuing evil that continues to grow throughout all of history until the end comes? Philip. Well, even like like where it is taking the Son of Man will appear in the sky. Like even not just verse 21, but like, I don't know, I have a lot of difficulty saying that none of this is talking about the end, but then so inherently it has the problem with verse 34. So I don't understand. And that's exactly, let's go to where Ray was going. If verse 34 didn't exist, if we were just going and I said, okay, there's a hard transition and it just wasn't noted with a nice, you know, transition in the text. You know, he's talking about one thing and then he's talking about another thing. Maybe Matthew just jammed two things together and put them next to each other and he confused us. He's a bad editor of the gospel. That, until we get to this point, you'd say that could be a possible explanation. But as Ray pointed out, as you're pointing out, now we get to verses 32 to 35. He says, learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Okay. So he's saying, like, you should be able to interpret some of these signs as they approach. Even so, when you see all these things, you will know that it is near right at the door. Okay? And then the problematic verse. I tell you the truth. 
This generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. I mean, as if to add like more emphasis to the, I really mean this. You know, I'm not kidding around. These words are really true. Now, go talk amongst yourself and solve that, you know. Yeah. Right before that, like even, even when you, even so, when you see all these things, you know that it is near right at the door. If the, all these things is the same in that and the next verse, uh, it seems, I don't know, my, my assumption if you're reading that is that it's similar to what you said in the first part, that he's saying, hey, the, this is not the end. All these things I'm describing is not the end of it. Once those things have happened that I just talked about, then it's near. Like, but I don't know how that works with everything else. Because I feel like that even it has the same type of language. That, you know, that it's near, right at the door, but not quite yet. Even with the fig tree, the same idea. Like, once you see the they get tenderness come out, you know that summer is near. So, okay. Among people who looked at this, here's some of the thoughts they have. This part about this generation in your NIV, you'll note there's a little footnote. And it's retranslated and it says, or race. Like the word generation could be translated as a generation or this race of people that stands before me. So some people have interpreted it to mean that until these unbelieving Jewish people standing in front of me. And so they're still around. It hasn't like, you know, happened yet. Everybody I read said that's a bad explanation. <laughs> uh, I don't know why the NIV has that in there, but almost every commentator is like, that doesn't cut it. So trying to redefine the word generation to get out of the problem is just more problematic. Okay, here's the other explanation. That the things that will certainly not pass away are limited verses that he just said. Basically, everything that's going to be up until the destruction of the temple. That is what is going to happen before this generation dies out. And that did happen. So there, problem solved. But the fact that this comes later sounds kind of funny because it almost sounds like you're supposed to just know that verse 21 to the end hasn't happened yet. All right. Anyone else have one? Yeah. The, there's a very intentional construction here. And like, what, I, what I'm suggesting is that this whole chapter is a whole genre unto itself. It's not even gospel. It's really apocalyptic. And it's very interesting. If you just pull this out and you put it at the end of Revelation, you wouldn't know the difference. Minus the beasts and the... Uh, and the yeah, 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 okay. Um, but what I'm saying is that there is a theological answer to this entire chapter. And I, and I think the shift is the disciples confuse the importance of the temple with the coming of the end and they, they don't even get the point of Jesus' ministry at this point. They're, they're, really, they're, they're clearly not understanding. So he first responds by answering what the, you know, what, what, or not the signs of the end. Then he responds by making this peculiar statement about the destruction of the temple, I, I think, as it relates to it not having to be there. Which means that the theological idea is that what he's talking about here is, I think, the introduction of his kingdom which would mean that all these things technically still did occur. So his death on the cross is the introduction of the new kingdom, that thing by which they, they witnessed and that they saw, and that 
you know, with the temple gone later, with the temple gone, you don't have to worry anymore about confusing, oh, is this another Messiah? Is, has the Messiah come? Like, that, that whole, like, tradition is gone, basically. That, that whole history is, is not there. That's a big deal. I mean, if you think about from the time of the first temple to the second temple, their, their entire lives evolved around that building and its writings and its religiosity, all those things. So in that sense, it really could be that catastrophic. Uh, I think that this would be consistent. I think there's something very intentional going on here. You know, the reason that I think that what you're saying, there's a lot of merit to it. But I want to remind you guys that if we go back earlier in Matthew, in chapter 10, we've seen a very similar statement from Jesus. There he's sending out his disciples into the various, the various cities, and he's saying that all these things are about to happen. And in verse 10:23, he says, When you are persecuted in one place, flee to another. I tell you the truth, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. There's another one of those, like, you will not finish, or this generation will not pass type saying. Like, you'll not pass until this happens. But there he was talking about the Son of Man arriving, coming, the kingdom coming, something being inaugurated. And we kind of dealt with it neatly then and just said, oh, yeah, yeah, because sure, they're not going to die before either he's crucified, resurrected, uh, Pentecost comes. Like something's going to happen and they'll still be alive. But here, it, it's more problematic, I think, than trying to tie it up nice and neat because he's talking about, I really do believe he's talking about a future coming of the Son of Man. And he's using the very words about coming in the clouds, I, I don't know. I mean, that could refer to him being resurrected and ascended. Some people have said that. But most people think, no, it has to do with him coming back. The words about gathering the elect and all that stuff sounds like the second coming. It sounds like what he's going to do at the end. But like, you know, we've seen like parallel passages, like um, uh, the, the order of things have sometimes switched. Like, you know, like the Beatitudes, like the... Some of those were switched in orders of things. And so, like, I mean, I don't know. Like, it seems like the, even if Jesus said all these things perfectly, exactly how it was said, like, I don't know. Like, I could foresee. It just seems how this last statement is said doesn't make sense with, like, three verses earlier. It makes sense with ten verses earlier a lot better. Good. I think that's right, by the way. And I'll close it off this way to stop you guys from being tortured any further at this passage. Because I know that I, I knew from the beginning when I got this, I was like, oh, this is going to be rough. Here's the way I would resolve it, personally. I found one person who led me to this kind of understanding, and I thought it's pretty good. If we go all the way back to here, these are all the things, starting in verse 4, going to 14, that are going to happen before the end comes. They're actually even before the temple comes, many people think. And I'll just offer this as just one explanation, but it's the one that I thought sounded right. Maybe what Jesus was saying is that these aren't signs of the end here because all these things are going to take place before the temple is destroyed. The temple being destroyed is not the end. In fact, the temple being destroyed might be the beginning of this age that's going to continue. But here's what I thought was kind of neat. Most commentators, like I said, point out that most of these things did occur before the destruction of the temple. I mean, it doesn't take much to think there was a war. There were plenty of wars in the 40 years that came after Jesus' death resurrection. There were earthquakes. There were some recorded. They even noted where some of them were. There was famine. There were all these things. And then the end will come. You see that last part at the bottom? 
that this commentator said maybe the best way to understand this is that Jesus is saying everything that has to happen, everything that's not even a sign, all that stuff is already done, and the temple's destroyed. That means I could come back at any moment. Like the signs that you think will be future signs are not signs. And the reason they're not signs is because they're going to already happen by the time the temple's destroyed. And listen to that last part, meaning that I can come back at any moment. There is nothing that has yet to come. Even this part here about preaching to all the nations, you know, there's a lot of people running around saying, we've got to get to every people group, every nation group. We've got to get them all a Bible and teach them all to understand the gospel because Jesus is stuck in heaven and he can't come back until we reach every single one of them. And there are people who believe that. But if you read the original language of what it meant by all the nations, it meant all the known people. You could interpret that. In fact, the right interpretation, most commentators say, is it meant the known world, the Roman Empire. Certainly by the time the temple was destroyed, Paul had already gone out to numerous places and spread the gospel throughout the Roman Empire. Churches had already begun. So you could say even that had been accomplished by the time the temple was destroyed. And I like that. I like that explanation. I like the idea that while we, some of us, are waiting and reading signs and saying, you know, like once the temple gets rebuilt or once we reach every people group or once this happened, then Jesus can come back. Like he can't come back any sooner. And that's wrong. Because if you read this in this explanation with this lens, I guess is the way to say it. If you read it with that lens, that interpretive lens, it means that everything that needs to be done is already done. And he can come back at any moment. And the reason I like that explanation so much is when we turn the page and start reading verse 36 next week, Jesus starts to talk about how the hour is not going to be known but could happen at any moment. And he begins to give three parables about people who didn't expect it to come because they still thought something else was going to happen and how they were caught off guard. And that's when he begins to tell the parables. And I think that explanation makes sense. I'll offer it to you as a way to harmonize some of those things. I'm not saying that I've reached any answers for you tonight. I'm sorry. I can lay out the different commentaries. You can read them all. I can copy them all. You can read them and you can see where they disagree. But most of them still come out and say there seems to be two distinct things here. The temple prediction and the end of the age predictions. And that there is some break between them. And maybe this understanding of this generation will not pass away is that, yes, everything has come already, except the final part, which is the Son of Man coming in the clouds. And that, there's nothing holding back except the Father, because only the Father knows. And we'll pick that up next week and take it from there. All right? Let's pray. Lord, we are sorry people sometimes. We struggle to read the languages. We struggle to read and interpret what Matthew has done with his writing. But Lord, we don't dare ask you for something even more powerful, and I'll ask for it right now. Lord, you, Holy Spirit, are the one who inspired this text, and Lord, I believe that with my heart, and I pray that now, in this age, you illuminate it for us, that by your power, by your strength, by your living inside of us, that you would bring us to a better understanding. If we have done a bad job tonight, Lord, forgive us. We seek only to know you and know you better, but so that that might transform us, not for knowledge's sake alone. So Lord, tonight, we barely scratched the surface of knowledge. So I ask that this week you transform us, even in ways that would help us to better understand your words. Pray this in your name. Amen.